opportunity to come into your house and worship you. God, we pray for the preparation and proclamation of this word. May you use it to bring your name, glory, and honor. May it be a blessing to your people. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, today is what is known the first Sunday in Lent, and Lent is that 40-day period, uh, beginning with Ash Wednesday and moving towards Resurrection Day, and there's so much in it, uh, in Lent, uh, but I encourage you to Google it. And, and read for yourself and find out some of the interesting, th great things that the church does during this season of Lent. But in, in light of keeping with the theme, uh, of some of the themes for Lent, um, I want to preach today from a, the topic, Journey to the Cross, A Journey Through Temptation. Journeying right. to the cross, a journey through temptation. Temptation to sin has been around since the beginning of human existence. The serpent approached Eve and Adam in the garden and tempted Eve with the promise of a certain kind of wisdom if she would take a bite of this forbidden fruit. And Eve gave into the temptation and ate the fruit. And Genesis uh, 3 and 6 declares that she also gave to her husband, Adam, of course, and he ate. Adam also yielded to this sin of temptation. Abraham gave in to temptation and when he lied about Sarah not being his wife. David was tempted, you know the story well, by the beauty of Bathsheba as she was taken bathing herself and he watched her and he gave in to that temptation and he eventually had an adulterous relationship and had a husband, Uriah, kill. James and John, also known as the sons of thunder, yielded to uh, the temptation of lust, lust uh, for power and position and prominence. Judas yielded to the temptation to betray Jesus, and Peter yielded to the temptation to deny Jesus. Temptation has been around since the beginning of human existence. And here we are, this first Sunday in Lent. Here we are, the first Sunday in March 2017, and temptation to sin still surrounds us. Some of us came to church this morning having been tempted. Some of us faced temptation all last week. Some of us are being tempted even now as the preacher preaching, and you're saying, oh, my God, the preacher's reading my mail. No, I'm not. Temptation is all around us. To be sure, different things tempt different people. What might tempt me may not bother you, and what tempts you may not bother me. But truth be told, all of us, regardless of our style, our station, or our status in life, will be tempted. It makes no difference how holy we are, how many sermons we preach, how many Bible studies we attend, how much we pay our tithes, how much we worship, we will still be tempted. But here's some good news. Jesus knows all about it. In fact, the writer of Hebrews 4.15 explains, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one, that is Jesus, who has been tempted in every way. That means that Jesus was tempted in the flesh, every way imaginable, just as we are, yet without sin. 
Jesus knows every aspect, every avenue, every angle, every arrangement of temptation. Jesus knows. Temptation is, in and of itself, not sin. Did you not know that? When you're tempted by itself, that's not a sin on your behalf. The Bible clarifies this point by letting us know that even Jesus was tempted, yet the scripture says, without sin. Sin occurs when we yield to or when we succumb to, or when we give into whatever it is, or whoever it is that's tempting us. Sin occurs when we're on our internet, and, and it's not a sin when a pop-up, a pornography pops up. That's not the sin. The sin occurs when we click and when we watch. The sin is not when someone tempts us to step outside of our marital relationships with their eyes, with their walk, with their conversation. But the sin is when we step outside of the marital relationship and commit adultery. That's the sin. The hymn writer was correct in penning the words, yield not to temptation. For yielding is sin. The background for today's scripture is found in John 3, 13 through 17, where the wilderness preacher, John the Baptist, baptizes Jesus. You remember the story. It was a beautiful occasion, and, and, and John got into this conversation, this debate, if you will, about baptizing Jesus, and Jesus says, no, suffer it to be so. And so John baptized him, and immediately after Jesus comes up out of the water, he came up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And suddenly Jesus heard the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What a wonderful occasion. What a, a, an amazing occasion. Here it is. God publicly affirms the ministry of Jesus. But it was that public affirmation that set the stage for Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 which is the story of Jesus being tempted by the devil. I encourage you to go back and read that story. Remarkable story of the devil's audacity to attempt to, to, to lure Jesus into temptation. So notice verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 1 teaches us two things. First, it teaches us that temptation is real. And so anybody, any religious leader, any, anybody who, who pl plays or pretends that they are never tempted and nothing bothers them are living in a fantasy world. Verse 1 teaches emphatically that that, that that temptation is real. No matter our situation, our status, or our standing in life, we will face temptation. The preachers face it. The deacons face it. The churchmen, everybody faces temptation. 
Then the second thing that verse 1 teaches is that the devil is real. The devil is not a figment of your imagination. The devil is not someone running around with a pick fork and a low tech. The devil is real. He's real. Now, although he is real, there's some things you need to know. Although he is real, contrary to popular opinions and popular misconceptions and improper teachings about him, he is not omnipotent. He is real, but he is not omnipotent. You need to know that the devil does not have all power. God has all power. The devil has limited power. You need to know that. He, he's on a limited budget, if you will. I, I liken it to like when I was growing up in South Carolina, people would have bad bulldogs and bad German shepherds. And we didn't have pit bulls back in those days, but we had some bad dogs. And, and, and people would, would put their dogs on a chain. In South Carolina, they call them a change. They would change their dog up. And that dog would bark and scrowl and gnaw. But the truth of the matter is the owner had that dog on a chain. He could only go so far or do so much. And so we as children learned that when we walked by that house, the dog was on a chain. Although he was barking and carrying on, he could not do us any harm. Well, God has the devil on a chain. So he can raise his head, he can bark, he can snarl, he can, he can kick up dust, but he can only go so far and do so much. And God wants you to know that today. The devil is on a limited budget. And, and besides, if the devil had all power, he would have stopped, blocked, and dropped the resurrection, and you and I would not be here today. We would be lost in our sins. If he had all power, Jesus never would have got up from the grave. So just remind yourself of that. He does not have all power. His power is limited. And another thing, uh, we used to watch Flip Wilson's show. Some of y'all remember, remember that? The young people, you can Google it. Well, Flip Wilson used to say on his show, every time he did something wrong or messed up, he would say, the devil made me do it. Y'all remember that? Yeah, he, he said, the devil made, well, 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 the reality of it is this. The devil can't make you or me do anything unless we give him controlling interest in our lives. If we give him the reins of control, then he moves and, and manipulates and pushes us. Now, not only that, he's not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. God has all power. He's not omniscient. That means he does not know everything. Although he's been around for a very, very, very long time, and although he's had a very long time to study the game plans of human existence, 
He does not know everything. Get it out of your mind that the devil knows everything about you. He does not. In fact, when you go to God in prayer, in the silence, in, in your time of silence and solitude, the devil does not know what you are saying to God. And back at our home church, Jehovah Missionary Baptist Church in Columbia, South Carolina, the older saints, after they sang a song, Deacon Jones, they would, they would hum. And then they would say this, that when you hum, the devil doesn't know what you're talking about. Well, I didn't understand that theology back then, but as long as we're saying words, he knows. But when we hum, when we moan, he doesn't have a clue. Don't fool yourself. God knows everything. Satan's knowledge is limited. The limited knowledge of Satan is acknowledged by Solomon. Mark this text and go back and read it when you have a chance. In 1 Kings 8 and 39, where Solomon prays to God, saying these words, Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart, get this, he's talking to God, whose heart you know, don't miss this, for you alone, that's what Solomon says, for you alone, God, knows the hearts of the sons of men. The devil does not know all that is in your heart. The word of God says that God alone knows. The heart all, of all the sons of men. I love Psalm 139. I preached my senior sermon at, in, in seminary on Psalm 139. And where the, where the psalmist says, Whether shall I flee from your presence? And where can I go? And then he talks about God knowing the words of his mouth, even before his lips formed them. Well, not only is the devil not omnipotent and not omnipotent, Nishant and know everything. He's not all powerful. God knows everything. God is all powerful. He is not omnipresent. That means he is not everywhere at the same time. How do you know, Pastor? Well, one way I know is the words of Job in 1 7 that makes the point clear in that when God asked Satan, From where do you come from? Satan replied, from going to and fro. Well, you don't go to and fro if you're already there. God would not have pointed to him. It's where do you come from if he was already where he was going? It may seem like he's everywhere at the same time causing confusion and creating havoc and chaos but he's not but he does have countless cohorts emissaries demons working on his behalf all over the world and they are working 24 7 but his presence is limited god is everywhere at the same time but the devil is not so it is as verse 2 tells us jesus has fasted 40 days and 40 nights and was hungry it was at this point that the devil came 
to him at what the devil perceived at a, as a weak moment of Jesus physically in the flesh. He was hungry. The devil came to him with a barrage of temptations aimed at destroying the mission, the mandate, and the ministry of Jesus. And the same barrage of temptations the devil used against Jesus in an aim to destroy him, he still uses towards God's people today, you and me. You are working in the church. You are trying to live a Christian life. You are trying to live holy. You are trying to do the right thing on your job. You are trying to be a good husband, a good wife, a good parent, a good neighbor, a good friend. And the same temptations he used against Jesus, he uses against us. Every temptation you and I face in life will fit into the category of temptation Jesus faced. And the aim is still the same because Satan has not changed his mode of operation. The aim of the temptation is to deflect the mandate, divert the ministry, and destroy your mission. That, that's his aim. That's what temptation is all about. Let me, let me say that again. The aim is to deflect your mandate, divert the mission, get you off track, and destroy your ministry. And we see it happening around us all the time. People yield to temptation, and they, their mandate is deflected, their mission is diverted, and their ministries are destroyed. And so now let's notice the temptation. First, the tempter said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones become bread. Notice the word if in the text. If is not about doubt on the devil's behalf concerning who Jesus was. He knows full well who Jesus is. The if factor was used to coach Jesus into the position of beginning his ministry as a crowd pleaser. That is, doing things to please the crowd so that they would believe in him and follow him. Stay with me. One of the greatest temptations we face is that of pleasing people by trying to prove to them who we are and what we claim to be. That puts us in a serious position of manipulation. Anytime our goal is to please people, it places us in a serious position to be manipulated by the people we try to please. Some years ago, I was leaving the office here at the church when I was told by a choir member, they were having choir rehearsal, and one of the choir members came out and told me that there was a man in the church uh, asking choir members for money. And he had explained to them that he and his family were, were stranded, and, and he needed some money to go and find him a place to stay for the night, and then he needed some gas money to get further on uh, to another state or to another city, wherever it was. And, and, and so he had shared that. And, and in fact, a few of the couple of choir members had given him some money. And, and then they came out, and somebody thought, you know, came up with the idea, we need to call pastor and talk to pastor about this. 
So they came out, came over to get me, and immediately I went into the sanctuary, and I asked the gentleman if he would step outside so that we could talk. And he did, and, and he explained the same thing to me that he explained to them, that he and his wife were here, and that they were stranded, and that they needed gas money, and that they needed a place to stay. And so what I did uh, was I called a couple of shelters and I, I found a place for he and his wife to stay. And, 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 and they said, well, the, the wife and the daughter can stay here, but, but you can stay over here, but we have room for you and you can come. When I shared the information with him, the man was obviously offended at me and he explained that he was not that type of person that he would spend the night in a shelter with those people. That's what he said to me. He then said to me, in the presence of my wife, here's the manipulation, he said, you are supposed to be a pastor. You are supposed to be a preacher. I thought you would help me. And I said, I'm trying to help you, but you don't want the kind of help that I'm offering, so needless to say, he drove away angry and disappointed that his manipulative scheme did not work. What he was saying is, now, I, I thought you were supposed to be a pastor. I thought you were supposed to be a preacher. What he's saying, I thought that you would be an easy target and the church members would be an easy target for me to manipulate and take the advantage of. Now, in addition to using the word if in order to manipulate Jesus, the tempter uses the word command. He said, command these stones become bread. Do you see the temptation? The temptation is, is, is to lure Jesus into establishing his ministry built upon self-indulgence. How do you know, Pastor? Well, look at the text. Notice, turning stones into bread was not about feeding multitudes of hungry people. It was about abusing power to serve self. Well, it wasn't about feeding hungry people, but it was about luring Jesus into using his power to indulge himself. Jesus saw straight through Satan's tactic, his strategy, and he replied in verse 4, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus rips into the devil's first temptation strategy by countering him with the reality of the word of God. The reality is this, that while physical bread has its place, the bread of life, which is the word of God, is the ultimate source of life. I have not come to indulge myself, but I have come to share the bread of life. Jesus was not interested in self-indulgence. He was interested in blessing the people of God with the things of God. So it was temptation one failed. And so the devil moves to temptation too. And that's his mode of operation because when one temptation fails, he comes back with a, another. 
And verse 5 and 6 reveals, then the devil took him into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Temptation, too, is about enticing Jesus to prove his deity, to prove his isness, to prove his divinity, to prove himself as the son of God by performing some spectacular act. What the devil is saying, if you are really who you say you are, prove it. But before we go there, let me make a point. Let me point out one of the devil's greatest tools, which he shrewdly used against Jesus in the text. Some of you already see it. The tool is the abuse and misuse of scripture. That's one of his greatest tools. Even today, the misuse and the abuse of scripture, the taking scripture out of its historical context and bidding it and twisting it and using it to support one's personal agenda. Notice in verse 7, the devil quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 when he when he spoke to Jesus, he quotes scripture, misquotes scripture. He misquotes it. Psalm 91, 11, 12 reads this way. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. He conveniently left out that part. To keep you in all your ways, in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Notice the devil's version of the scripture clearly omits the phrase in the Semitic text, which reads, to keep you in all your ways. What does that mean? Why did the devil leave that out? Well, to keep you in all your ways, in its proper context, means that God will keep you As long as your ways are proper in his sight. Are you getting that? God will keep you. It means that in all your ways, as long as you remain in his will. The devil left that part out. He said, for he will give your angels charge over you. Jump. Left out to keep you in all your ways, which was not the way of God for Jesus to jump. Now, if we decide to get out of his will and go it alone, destruction is inevitable. How many of you have experienced that? That when you decided to get out of the will of God, trouble is always on that road. So that old trickster, that slickster, that crude, that sly, that slamming, manipulating devil sought to get Jesus off course by misusing and abusing the scriptures. Now back to the second temptation, which was an effort on behalf of the devil to entice Jesus to prove his deity or his divinity by performing a spectacular event 
that the devil had chosen, chosen rather, had the devil succeeded in his quest, it would have put him in the driver's seat of Jesus's ministry. In the minds of the people, the devil instead of God would have been the promoter, the agent, and the manager of Jesus' ministry. He would have been the one saying, come one, come all, and see the show. Featuring Jesus and his jump from the temple. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see how I, the devil is saying, come and see how I had the power. To influence him, how I had the power to schedule his events, to call the shots in his life, and to direct the course of his ministry. Come and see how Messiah jumped 170 feet to impress me. But praise God from whom all blessings flow. That Jesus didn't jump. Aren't you glad that he didn't jump? But rather Jesus responded to the wicked, the worthless, the walk provocation of the devil with the words of verse 7. Devil, it is written. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Don't miss that. Jesus said you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus said to the devil, I am Lord over you, devil. You don't tell me when to jump. I tell you when to jump. Jesus makes it clear in the text that under no circumstances should God be tempted, tested, or tried with foolishness. God's power, God's purposes, God's promises, and God's protection should not be played with like children play with toys. It never ceases to amaze me that every once in a while I hear people who are playing with God that, that get prognosis and get good diagnosis and get good medical attention and yet somebody tempts them to play with God. Don't eat like you're supposed to eat. God will take care of you. Don't take the medication that God has prescribed. God will take care of you. Don't keep up your health like you're supposed to. God will take care of you. No, that's the devil saying jump. Jesus taught that God's word should be trusted and not spectacular events, actions, or happenings. His goal, Jesus' goal, was for people to focus their attention on faith in God, not on spectacular events and happenings which, by the way, are usually designed to put attention on people instead of on God. Let me give you an example. Not many years ago, in a city not far from here, 
a so-called revival took place. I mean, it was a massive thing. I was talking to a lady up in South Carolina that I knew uh, that, that helped my wife and I when we in college. She was in the admissions office, and she said, you know, Linnell, have you heard about the revival? I said, yeah, well, I heard about it. I said, but have you been? No, I don't go. I'm not interested. I'm busy doing what the Lord called me to do at Good Hope. So I'm not, I haven't been up there. I said, in fact, you know more about it than I do. <laughs> well, people from miles around, the state of Florida and from other states were drawn to this so-called revival because of the revivalists who were said to be doing spectacular things. Although I had no interest in attending the, the meetings, I did read about it. It was for public knowledge. I read where this man was, was, was said to be practicing foolish tactics like punching people in the stomach and, and wrestling with them as a part of the healing process. And while there were reports, and while there were, were reports of healings taking place, the credibility of those said to have been healed was not established nor substantiated. Well, what's the, what's the issue with substantiation? Well, uh, notice when Jesus healed the ten lepers in Luke 17, 11 through 9, he healed them and, and he sent them to the priest in order that the priest might substantiate their healing. You know, if you really heal somebody, you ought not mind a medical doctor, somebody substantiating the, the healing. You, you know, when, you know, when Peter and John, I mean, they, they didn't mind. You know, check it out for yourself. This is something that God has done. In addition to that, when the healing took place in the early church, it was never about the man. And matter of fact, matter of fact, usually when folk come to town talking about healing and doing revivals and all kinds of things, usually it's about the person and it's about the dollar. Can I just be real with you? Usually there's about a big time collect. There's money in it somewhere. But wherever the disciples healed, whenever Jesus healed, it was never about the dollar. It was about Jesus. It was never about the humans. When, when, when healings took place in the early church, it was not about the disciples trying to build a name for themselves and get their names in lights and to, to live lavish lifestyles. It was never about that. It was not about the man. It was about the master. For example, in Acts chapter 3, God's power was demonstrated when a lame man was healed. Everybody knew the man was lame. Everybody knew the man had been healed. In verse 11, the man, out of gratitude and respect for Peter and John, held on to them. And the news spread quickly, and a crowd gathered around in Solomon's colonnade. They were full of amazement. Peter and John had participated in the healing of this man. People gathered around. Now, lesser folk than Peter and John would have said, oh, yeah, that's me. Let's take another offering. Let's, let, let's, let's get my name up in lights. Let's, let's name something after me. Put me on a T-shirt. Put me on your bumper sticker. Whatever. But Peter spoke to the crowd, correcting their assumption that he and John had special powers in and of themselves. Notice what Peter says in verse 12. Men of Israel, I love this. Why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? Peter and John said, it's not about us. Why do you look?
look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk. The apostles go on to the point to point out to the crowd that it was Jesus. It is faith in, he said, his name, the name of Jesus that made this man well. Not about some joke of punching folks in the stomach and wrestling with people and, and, and taking offerings. It's not about that according to the biblical text. Peter said it's about the name of Jesus. In other words, it's not about people doing spectacular things. It's about our spectacular God doing remarkable things, radical things, revolutionary things, even in the eyes of the world, things that are ridiculous. But now back to the so-called revival. The leader was found out over a period of time to be a fraud, and that's the way it always is. God just pulled a pull the cover off him, and, 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 the, and the leader was found out to be a fraud and a womanizer, a womanizer who left town under a cloud of disgrace, embarrassment with a divorce eventually, and an embarrassment to the congregation which had hosted him. That's the reason why I put a lot of prayer into the people that I bring here at Good Hope. A lot of prayer into the people that I allow, that I encourage or invite to come here to preach. I'm concerned about God first, and I'm concerned about you. So I'm not interested in people who can just sound good, or people who can just sing good, or people who are handsome and look good. And I'm concerned about people who walk holy before God. That's who we want preaching and teaching the word of God. We're not concerned about theatrics and that which is spectacular, but we are concerned about our spectacular God who uses ordinary people like Peter and John to do spectacular things. Lastly today, Temptation 3 is about idol worship. Verses 8 and 9 states again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I would give you, get this now, if you will fall down and worship me. If you would make me your God, if you would make me your idol, the devil says, I will give you all of this stuff. And this temptation is still alive today because the devil is still offering to give people all the things of the world. If they would only reject God and follow him, he says, I'll give you stuff. I'll give you fame. I'll give you glory. But you got to bow down and worship me. I'm so concerned about many of our people in the entertainment business who reject God and many of those in the athletic world who reject God and they have all of this stuff but no God the Lord God of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in their lives the temptation is alive today the devil is still offering to give people the things of the world if they would only reject God and follow him the tempter says if you would compromise on doing what you know is right 
if you will cheat a little here and cheat a little there, if you will say yes, when you know the right thing to do is say no, and if you will say no, when you know it's right to say yes, if you will slack off on your worship attendance and prayer meeting and Bible study, or if you would just stop participating in church life altogether, if you will refute the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your grandparents and your parents, the God who has brought you this far by faith, if you would only renounce Jesus, who suffered and bled and died on Calvary's cross to save you from your sins, if you would ignore the reality that Jesus rose from the grave with all power in his hands, if you reject him, bow down and worship me, I will give you this world's goods and this world's glory. Yes, if you can do it, you can stay on the job. Yes, if you do it, you can please your supervisor. Yes, if you do wrong, you will make certain people happy, but you will deny God in the process. And our response to the devil and all that he offers should be this. Devil, keep your silver. Devil, keep your gold. Devil, keep your job if it means my turning my back on God. Devil, keep your houses. Devil, keep your land. Devil, keep your cars, your trucks, your fancy titles, and your positions. If it means I have to worship you and turn my back on God, devil, keep it. 